The following conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at Major League Baseball's Playball Park in Los Angeles. <laughs> What's up, L.A.? And welcome to another live edition of Black Diamonds. Uh, I can't tell you. Again, I, I think for every one of these episodes we've done, I've told you how excited I am about, and I'm going to tell you again, I'm just as excited to have these three young men join me on stage uh, to have a conversation, number one, about a really important organization that is really doing some amazing work to help bring this game back to the urban community. And the work that they're doing now over the Player Alliance, you know them for their amazing major league careers. And they all had tremendous careers. You know, so I'm gonna introduce them. They don't really need an introduction, but I'm gonna introduce them starting from my far left, someone who really, another member of the Black Aces. <laughs> and, and I just had Ferguson Jenkins on just before you guys got here, and we talked about being here in LA, and of course the late Jim Mutcat Grant lived here for so long. And, and Cece was on the show last year, along with David Price and Dave Stewart, where we pulled together a group of those guys who had now become part of the Black Aces. And we talked about Mudcat. He's getting his Cy Young Award, but he had won, what, 19 games 19 that year? 19 games, yeah. 19 games that year. <laughs> and Mudcat is presenting him with the Cy Young Award. And what did he tell you? He told me this ain't enough. That ain't enough. <laughs> you got to get one more win. Yeah, but please join me in welcoming future Hall of Famer. It's going to happen. The legendary CC Sabathia. Also joining us, he had a prolific career in the major leagues. And if anybody was even close to comparing to playing for as many teams as Satchel did, it would be this guy. <laughs> and, and, and he also threw a no-hitter. And I know Satchel would be extremely proud of that. Welcome, Edwin Jackson. And, and, and my great friend. Every time, and I talk about this all the time, every time Curtis Granderson played on a team that came to Kansas City, he made sure that not only did he show up at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, he brought other people with them on every single stop. And he also had a tremendous career. Please welcome my friend Curtis Granderson back to Black Diamonds. Guys, it is so good to see you all. Thank you all for taking time out because I know how busy this this week, this weekend and everything that's going to happen with All-Star festivities and the great work that the Players Alliance is doing to help bring this game back to our community. And, and what the Player Alliance represents for me, and this is just my own personal take, you guys obviously are bringing very needed resources into communities. But you know what I think the biggest thing, the biggest impact that you're having is your presence. Your presence. Because now you become real in the eyes of so many kids who admired what you did from afar. They can now look at a CeCe Sabathia and an Edwin Jackson and a Curtis Granderson up close and personal, and now it is real. I can do the same thing. And you guys are always instilling that belief that they could do the same thing that you all did. You were very fortunate to be able to have tremendous major league careers. And what a blessing that was. But I've oftentimes told folks that the, the key thing about the Negro Leagues is that they had a league of their own where black kids could identify 
with everybody who played in that league. Yeah. They could identify. So Satchel Paige, as great as he was, Satchel Paige lived in the same neighborhood I lived in. Satchel Paige got his hair cut at the same barbershop I got my hair cut. You know, he's going to worship in the same place. So they were real. And this and tremendous work that the Player Alliance is doing is making this real the opportunity. Because I still say ours is the most aspirational sport of them all. So, Edwin, I want to start with you. As the founder of the, Black Alliance, of the Player Alliance, what does this work mean to you? Um, this is everything. Um, myself, growing up, a young black boy, um, loving the game of baseball, when we go talk to these kids, I see myself in every kid that I talk to. Um, and it's real, it's authentic. Um, when we go, you, as a kid, I wish I had this opportunity like to meet a baseball player, a professional baseball player at that in the MLB. I didn't go to my first major league game until I was already drafted. So to have this opportunity for us to really go out and touch these kids, it's special because when we come in person, they actually, they can relate to us. They see that we are real because they think we're superhuman and we aren't. We, we, <laughs> we all normal people up here. All three of us, we, we talk like them, we eat like them, but to them, we're supernatural. And when they see us in person, it lets them believe that they can be supernatural as well. Yeah, no, I, I just think that that is such a critical aspect of this entire effort to try and bring this game back to our community. And, and, and that's why I commend the work. Like I said, the resources are invaluable. Mm -hmm. you know, we know we need resources, but your presence. You know, what does it make you feel, Cece, when you get face to face with some of these kids? Because I know your personality. I know where your heart is. What does that make you feel like when you're interacting with these young kids and they looking at you and, you know, they want to emulate what you guys have done? What is that like? No, that's better than baseball for me, because like you said about Satchel Paige living in your neighborhood and, you know, getting the haircut at the same place. I got a chance to meet Dave Stewart when I was nine years old. I always tell you this story. And that made it real for me. Like, he's, this is a real baseball player in my Boys and Girls Club. Like, I can do this. Like, and it just made, I can see myself in the game. So for us to be able to be out in communities and, um, you know, we, we, we talk about this all the time. We all did stuff individually before, you know, we, combi before we combined and made the Players Alliance. Um, so now to have us all together is kind of like a superpower. You know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 it's through our friendship, you know, we're going to help you know, benefit the game of baseball and, and, you know, with your help and all the stuff that, you know, that you kind of raised us up, you know, all three of us in the game. Um, you know, I'm just excited to be here, you know, with my friends and, you know, representing the Players Alliance and, and trying to do the right thing in the community. But it all started with that realization that, that that could be me and seeing Dave Stewart when I was nine years old. Yeah. Now, Curtis, what about you? It's, what, it's, what was that influence for you when you first got introduced to the game? And what is it that you now want to carry forth as you continue to try and make an impact in the future of our game? Well, I think where we're sitting right now is a prime example of it. We have all these Negro League greats around us. Unfortunately, a lot of us didn't get a chance to see them play, but this is where individuals like Bob and our parents and family members come and tell these great stories that bring you back into it. So when we get a chance to be with Bob and be with people that experience that, we're getting that from them, which then in return, like Cece said, we're bringing that to all the kids in the different communities where we live at, where we call home, where we play at, and where we get a chance to travel to. And everybody paved the way for us. We didn't just get here magically. A lot of people think you just woke up and you were a Major League Baseball player. <laughs> there was somebody along your path yeah. that helped you. And we want to be the same thing for all the people that we get a chance to touch. And that's been probably the most joy and excitement of doing what we get a chance to do and the volume that we have, the number of former and current players 
that want to get out and touch each and every one of you is absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, and you know, folks, this is not just baseball. This is in every aspect of life. You know, there's an old ad that says, each one reach one. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I think if we subscribe to that belief, we bring someone else along. We get to wherever we get. If it's the pinnacle, you know, to get to the National Baseball Hall of Fame or what have you, we have an inherent responsibility to help someone else. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, I think about our friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill. You know, he's going to be enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame next weekend in Cooperstown. And, and I'm sure it's going to be extremely emotional for me. You know, and I think about how much he helped me along this journey. I fell in love with the Negro Leagues after meeting Buck O'Neill. Uh -huh. and, and this has been a passion project for me ever since. I had no idea, Curtis, that it would turn into a career. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, you don't see that coming. I just wanted to do whatever I could to be a part of this great organization and to sit here with these three tremendous African-American ball players in this environment inside this beautiful exhibition. I don't know if it could be any better for me. <laughs> it, don't, it don't get much better than this. You know, this is really, really special. All of you know how important the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is, and I certainly believe that as you all are doing your work, the history of our place in this game becomes increasingly important as well. Because even those young people who are walking through this exhibit, particularly the African-American and Hispanic kids who are walking through this exhibit, what do they see? They see people who look just like them. And they played this game, y'all, as well as anyone ever played this game. And, and so that hopefully starts to ignite a little bit of that flame that, again, they can be what you all were. So talk a little bit again, Curtis, about the role of the Player Alliance and, and, and what you guys are embarking on right now. So our role right now, we established the Players Alliance in 2020. One of our founders right here, Edwin Jackson, was at the forefront. Since he played with everybody, he knew everybody. <laughs> he was able to call everybody to get everybody on the phone. And everybody started learning this thing called Zoom. And we all collectively came together to continue with what we've already been talking with. These conversations we've been having, we've been talking about ways to come together. We just couldn't collectively put it all together in such the volume that we've had. But now 150 plus former and current ball players represent the Players Alliance. And our main goal is to break down the different barriers that cause us to get access to this game. Not just playing the game, but being a part of the game, going to the game, working in the game, being involved in this game, and getting a chance to see individuals like us, camera crews, people that are on the mic, people that are in production, people that are in social media going, wow, that looks cool. I want to do that. I want to be like that is all part of what the Players Alliance stands for and will continue to keep doing. Yeah, no, and somebody's going to take my job at some point, but don't, <laughs> don't, 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 don't take it right now. I'm still trying to buy some golf clubs. You know? see, see, it's never me. It's always the new club. So I'm always reaching for new equipment because it's going to help me get 10 more yards or something of that nature. So, so y'all can get this job, but wait a little while. But no, it is, it is so important to have those that you can emulate. Yeah. And to hear Edwin's story of never going to a major league game until you play your first major league game, that is absolutely incredible. I, I was drafted. I got drafted in 2001 
I had been to a Columbus Red Sticks game. It was, at the time, I think it was the A-ball team for the Red Sticks. I mean, the Indians. the Indians. The Indians. I played there. Yeah, it was the Indians. Yeah. So I had been to that game, but I hadn't been to a Braves game. I live an hour and a half from Atlanta. Um, and when I got drafted, they took the rookie ball team to a uh, Tampa Bay Rays game. So as a Dodger, I went to my first big league game as a Tampa Bay versus Dodgers. It was just an exhibition game. Well, not an exhibition, but for us, we had an exhibition day. And the trip was to a big league game, and that was my first time going to a big that, league game. That, that is just absolutely <laughs> amazing because That's I can crazy. tell you now, and, and I've been fortunate in my work at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to go to so many major league stadiums. I was just here a few weeks ago to do something with the Dodgers. We have a beautiful exhibition there in the outfield pavilion at the Dodgers called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit chronicles all of the integration pioneers all of the players who broke their respective major league teams color barriers starting with Jackie joining Brooklyn in 1947 through Elijah Pumsey Green being the last to complete the integration cycle 12 years later in 1959 so if you're over at at Dodger Stadium either for a Dodger game or this week for all-star festivities please make your way out to the outfield pavilion and check out this beautiful and important barrier breaker story but man every time that I step on a baseball field it is still surreal to me. You are still amazed by the grass and, and just how majestic and big the ballpark really is. And, and this is from an old man. <laughs> and, and, and it still feels that way for me every time. And to think that there are kids who never get that experience. You know, and I think it starts with even providing an experience just, as, just like that to let them walk out and feel what that grass feels like and to look at the expansive nature of being there on that ballpark, uh, being inside that ballpark. You know, little things like that means a great deal. Kind of along those lines, we did that last year. Every major league ballpark, we brought out a couple kids from the community to their first ever baseball game, and they got a chance to meet either active or former players. If a team had a black ball player on that team, we made sure they came out. So when they came to the Chicago White Sox, they met Tim Anderson. And when they went to Boston, who unfortunately doesn't have a black ball player, Pedro Martinez and David Ortiz, which I think are some two good ones to still meet, <laughs> were the first ones that they got a chance to meet. But it goes to the story. Think about how many barriers we already broke for these kids getting a chance to go to their first ball game. That's all because of the Players Alliance and because of what we're talking about here. If you see it, wow, I can actually probably do this. I want to do this. But we have to give them those opportunities, and that's what we've been doing. Well, you know, it's obviously very poetic that we're here in Los Angeles, 75 years since Jackie Robinson takes that monumental step on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, forever changing the game of baseball and in many regards, forever changing this country. When you reflect on what took place, I want each of you to, add, to answer this, and I'll start with you, Cece. When you reflect on that pioneering moment 75 years ago, what comes to mind? Um, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for that moment. Um, I definitely wouldn't have been able to, wasn't big enough or, or wouldn't have been a big enough man to, to step into that role in that moment, so I'm thankful. Um, I mean, it just that 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 means everything to me. You know, it's it's allowed me to live out my dream of playing Major League Baseball, but it also makes me realize how strong he had to be and what he had to carry, but not just carrying, you know, a whole race on his back of you know breaking the barrier of baseball, but the country too, because it this was like this was historic in the country. This oh, wasn't yeah. just a baseball no, no. moment. This was something that was big for our country and, and a civil rights like a you know it was it was a huge moment. So. Um, 
yeah, I just think that, you know, everything that he carried, everything that he stood for um, just allows me to go out and do what I want to do. And it makes me want to get up and, and be a better person every day because yeah. without him, you know, going through the things that he went through, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Yeah, Edwin, same question. Man, um, I, to piggyback off the part of not being here, um, I think that's all of us. Um, obviously, we wouldn't have this opportunity if it weren't for Jackie Robinson. Um, and to know everything he endured, I don't think I could have done it either. And with me, what hits me is being a big family man I am, raising a first of all, being a husband, and then being a dad on top of everything that you're going through outside of your family, that's tough. I mean, it's hard enough to be parents. We all trying to figure out our kids every day, you know? Uh, my mom called me every day like, boy, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> so nobody has the perfect, you know, the script of being a parent and doing that and also everything that he has going on outside of baseball and not bringing that home, that is incredible. You know, that that's a big feat for me and, and that touches home with me, you know, being a close-knit family. Yeah. Man. It's so interesting. There's so many different things I think about that they've already touched on. Let's think about that. 75 years ago, think about how many different things. Anybody over the age of 75 in here? Or close, right? <laughs> so just think about it. Just before that, you didn't see anybody of color on the field. Think about how impactful that is. Some of our most popular and powerful players in this game, I see a lot of Dodger fans out there. Mookie Betts does not exist without Jackie Robinson. Dave Roberts does not exist without Jackie Robinson. The Civil Rights Movement started after, after Jackie. Jackie Robinson. So think about all those things that Jackie did before that that allowed all of us to be in here today. It's all thanks to that man right there, Jack Roosevelt, Jackie Robinson. So think about the importance of that 75 years ago. And, and what I oftentimes tell people, for those of you who subscribe to the belief that one person cannot invoke change, you need to look no further than Jackie Robinson. You know, he is a shining example because even though he was playing a team sport, there was nothing team about what happened when he walked out on that field. You know, it wasn't like he was welcomed with open arms in his own Dodger clubhouse. Nobody wanted him to be there. And, and I think fear was so prevalent because so many of these players were white Southerners. And, and so they had never really had any interaction with a black person before. And all of a sudden, here comes this incredibly gifted athlete, you know, who was really an astute human being. Mm -hmm. He was articulate. He was smart, intellectual, a tremendous athlete. So number one, he defied everything that had been kind of that stereotypical depic depiction of black athletes to begin with. So that was part of the motivation why picking Jackie. And then he had already competed with and against white athletes. So this was not foreign to him. Whereas some of those other Negro League players, they hadn't had those kinds of experiences. So you wonder if they would have been able to handle the social weight that was going to be on the shoulder of that first guy. Because CeCe mentioned it earlier, he was literally carrying 21 million black folks on his back when he walked across those lines. And if he fails, an entire race of people would have failed. Yep. Now y'all, I tell y'all, <laughs> y'all know how difficult this game is to play under the best of circumstances. Imagine, imagine carrying an entire race of people in a game that is predicated on failure. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, you're going to fail more times than you succeed in this game. Right. You know, that's the nature of our game. And, and that's what Sam Allen, the former Negro League player, who you got to meet oh, that, yeah. no less, he was here earlier. And that's what he said. Baseball is a hard game. It is a hard game. And, and But yet it still is a game that we all think we can play. <laughs> we all think we can play. That's the beauty of baseball. As Buck O'Neill would say, you could have two 80-year-old men sitting on a couch watching a baseball game and a guy drops a pop fly. And first, what's the first word come out of their mouth? I would have I called that. I would have called that. <laughs> because we all think we can play this game, even though it is the most difficult, challenging game to play. And you do have to grow into this game. Yeah. Speaking of growing into this game, your young man <laughs> that's headed down to my, my neck of the woods, headed down to Georgia, to Georgia Tech, has a chance to be drafted. Have you thought about that? And, and, and how are you counseling him as both a father and as a guy who a young man who is a prospect in this game. Yeah, so he the draft is tonight. Um, he took his name out of the draft. He took his name out. Yeah, he just wanted to go to college. Yeah. Um, he's down at Georgia Tech now. He's working hard. Um, it's fun for me, you know, to still be in the game. You know, um, I have conversations with him about his at bats, and you know, uh, it's just one more thing that we can bond over. You know, like at when we are a close knit family. Um, I got four kids. He's the oldest. Um, and, and our, our relationship is like my little best friend, you know what I'm saying? And, and to have him on his journey um, of baseball and him love it so much. He works so hard at the game, um, mentally, physically, everything about this game he loves. Um, it just it warms my heart. It makes me feel good that he's, he's able to continue his journey at Georgia Tech. Um, and I get to see him play more baseball, man. That's, that's all it's about for our family. My wife's got she's, – she's a, an agent at CAA, so she's got two kids in the draft now. So – you know, we're kind of a baseball family. Um, and, and, you know, to, to, to see it kind of continue um, is awesome for me. I'm, I'm super excited. Them yeah. proud dive moments a lot. It's yeah. Fun. <laughs> you have to catch yourself like, man, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> Bro, I cry at everything. <laughs> everything. Every graduation, dance recital, baseball game. I cry at everything, man. I'm the worst. <laughs> get old. Yeah, get no, old. I get know, I know, man. That's what happens as we start to get older. Man, you, you appreciate these things so much more. And... Again, it's about instilling, instilling a belief, instilling hope. You know, because when I talk about what the Negro Leagues gave us, and, and, and when it's all said and done, this is the premise. This is the premise. This, these are the guys who built the bridge. They built the bridge. And as I've oftentimes said, in our, in our society, we don't always celebrate the people who built the bridge. We ultimately celebrate the people who crossed over the bridge. But we're surrounded right now by those who were the bridge builders. Yeah. They're the ones who enable Edwin Jackson, Cece Zabathia, and Curtis Grandison to cross over that bridge and have an opportunity to fulfill your dream of playing at the major league level. And, and so if you had to, I guess if you had to pinpoint something from the Player Alliance that is a key objective, something that you all really want to get accomplished this year. Is there any one aspect or maybe multiple aspects that you want to share with this audience? Well, this year, and I think one of the things we've talked about, it's been in this conversation, it's been very male dominant. You know, we've talked about Jackie. We've talked about us up here. But CeCe's wife, Amber Sabathia, is one of the first black female lawyers and agents in baseball. So think about that. We talked about Jackie breaking the barrier 75 years ago, and there's a lot of male agents in this business. There's not that very many female agents. That's one of our programs that we're looking to roll out here, female agents. 
Think about all the females that are in here, all the females that you know that are there, and how close they are to any decision you make in your life. What are we eating today? Go ask your mom, right? <laughs> Where are we going? Go ask your mom, right? Yeah. Think about that now when it comes to our contract. Cece, when it came time for you to do your contract, who you talk to? right there. Edwin, you made every decision. To, right? right so this is one of those other steps that we're also looking at. When we have Effa Manley, who did what she did in the Negro Leagues, she was one of those bridge builders. How long ago was that? Oh, God, this is in the 1930s and 40s when she was owner of the Newark Eagles. As I look at that beautiful picture, of my dear friend, the late, great Monty uh, yeah. Irvin, who was a star for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. And, and really, she was the one that blocked Monty from being the first. Because it wasn't Jackie that was Branch Rickey's first choice. It was the great Monty Irvin. And all, let me tell you, Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro League. Curtis, he had everything you needed. Movie star, good looks, five-tool kind of guy, hit for power, hit for average, could feel, could run, could throw. If Major League Baseball had gotten Monty Irvin when he was 20, 21 years old, oh, man, he gets that when he's 30 years old, and he still has a fabulous career, but it was Effa Manley who blocked the deal. Because she wanted to get paid, right? She wanted to get paid. <laughs> she wanted to get paid, absolutely. Absolutely, because Branch as astute and righteous as he was, he wanted to come into the Negro Leagues and essentially raid it of his star talent without compensation to the owners. And Effa Manley wasn't having it. She wasn't having it. She was prepared to litigate. She was going to take him to court. He didn't need a fight on his hands because he didn't need the other owners who you already knew were going to stand in solidarity and try to block this. He didn't need that. So he backs off of Monty Irvin. That's when he turns his sight to Kansas City, to Jackie Robinson. And, and contrary to popular belief, Branch Rickey never paid a dime for Jackie Robinson, a man who was absolutely under contract with the Kansas City Monarchs. See, he needed F a manly. He needed, <laughs> <laughs> he needed a female to help him do his thing. Yeah. And, and, and again, Branch being, uh, again, as astute as he was, he understood that the Monarch's owner couldn't fight back. You know why? He was white. Uh -huh. The Monarch's owner was white. He was white. His name was James Leslie Wilkerson. He had made his entire living in black baseball. So you can only imagine this. If it's this white man who made his entire living in black baseball, if he is the guy that stands up and blocks what virtually every black person in America had been waiting on, it's a wrap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that black fan base that had been so loyal to him, they would have turned their backs on him right away. And so he was stuck between that proverbial rock and hard place. And so he relented. Jackie then joins the Dodgers organization, goes to Montreal, as many of you know, has a tremendous season there in Montreal. And then April 15, 1947, joins the Brooklyn Dodgers. But it was the great Monty Irvin. Who was Branch Rickey's first, first guy that he really wanted. And he was the choice of the Negro League's owners if someone was going to break the color barrier. Now, it wasn't like they were just sitting there waiting for the color barrier to be broken because this was their business. But if someone was, Monty Irvin, because he had the exact same pedigree that Jackie had. College educated, served in the military. But to be quite frank, he was a better ball player than Jackie Robinson. And that's not to disparage Jackie, because as you three well know, 
Jackie Robinson is one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. Baseball <laughs> was his weakest sport, mm -hmm. which is just downright frightening. Yeah, yeah that's frightening, that's man. And, and I think all three of you guys played multiple sports, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. What, what, growing up, what was your best sport? Was baseball your best sport? Baseball was my last sport. Um, at the, I feel like earlier, I was probably better at football. Um, I mean, I always was good at baseball, but football was my first love. Um, I was born in Germany, coming back from Germany um, in 1991. I was on a military base and it was football season. So I was like, all right, that's the first organized, I mean, organized sport that I played. So that's what I fell in love with first. <laughs> um, then I played basketball and baseball was my last sport. But as I got older, um, it transitioned to baseball and I became better and I became, I mean, I knew this was my opportunity to go to school and I transitioned to baseball fully and I took off on my senior year. So I really got drafted in one year. I didn't start, I didn't start to my senior year and I got drafted an outfielder. Yeah, which is, a, which is amazing a in itself. I mean, yeah. you see those things happen. Lorenzo Cain, mm -hmm. of course, was one example of someone taking the game up late but still Tim blossoming. Anderson. Yep. Yeah. Tim Anderson, same thing. I had that conversation with Tim, same thing. You don't see that happen in our sport too often. What about you, Curtis? I played a variety of sports. Uh, I bowled. I ran track. <laughs> hey, don't give me on them lanes. I'll be all right with you right now. I played basketball. I played flag football and then baseball, of course. Uh, but mentally, I thought I was a better basketball player. Being from Chicago, you know, I wanted to be like Mike. You know? <laughs> but mentally, I was a better – I finally realized I was a better baseball player. And over time, I actually didn't think I was going to make it to the major leagues. I got drafted. I thought I would play for two years in the minor leagues, get released, and then put my college degree to work. And then the year after I thought I was going to be done, that's the year I got called up to the big leagues. And then they kept letting me come back. So the baseball side of it, and you talk about just the, the impact we have when we meet kids. Here's three different stories about all different paths on how you can get there. You can be like, oh, well, I started baseball late. Oh, you know, I played other sports. I'm big and I'm tall. Oh, I'm from a cold weather place. Like we have all the stories that you can easily look at and relate and saying, well, what about this and what about that? If it's not us, there's somebody in baseball that we can bring to you that you will get a chance to see and meet and go, wow, that person's story is very similar to my story. If they did it, I can do it. And that's yeah, the path and, of the player. And, and I've seen <laughs> pictures of you hooping yeah. and, 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 and a young lady who was a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Amber was a cheerleader. High school, um, high story. High school, high school story. <laughs> but, no, like, baseball was the easiest sport for me. I was a better football player, but baseball was just, like, every time I stepped on the baseball field, I was the best athlete. You know what I'm saying? Because I played other sports. I played soccer. I played basketball. I played football. So baseball was just like, oh, this is easy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, like I don't have to put in much work. <laughs> you ain't gotta get hit. You ain't gotta, I ain't get, gotta, get, gotta get hit. Get I can play this. Like, so uh, I just I kind of gravitated gravitated towards baseball um, as I got older. I started playing baseball when I was young, though. I started at four years old. So I, oh, that's like, I always knew what bases to throw. You know what I mean? Like exactly. The baseball IQ was there. Exactly. So it made it easier um, being a good athlete. Yeah. No, I mean you know, and I think when I look around this room at these images on the wall, that's the common denominator. They were all tremendous athletes. They could have played anything. But back then, to make a living, if you were to make a living in playing in a team sport, you played baseball. Mm -hmm. Because basketball and football were still more or less seen as collegiate sports. So the greatest athletes in the world 
played in the Negro Leagues. I, I think it's still that way, though. All yeah. baseball players are playing. Baseball is their second or third sport. Look at Mookie Betts. You mentioned Mookie. Mookie's great at everything. Like, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> he can bowl, too. He yeah. can play everything. Yeah, 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 Golf. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've yeah. never seen somebody that athletic. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's good at everything. He's good yeah. at everything. Like, not good at everything. We're good at everything. He's great yeah, at everything. Yeah, yeah, it makes you sick. He's great at everything. No, go So I think baseball still is like that to this day where if you – you talk to most guys, they, baseball was always like their second or third sport. Yeah. Now, for you guys, how has the game changed, if it has, you know, since you played and what you see today? I think, obviously, it's, it's, it's more life to it. It's more flair. I was, coming up, I was 20 in the clubhouse. The next oldest person was 25. So I sit in my locker, I chill, playing Snake on the phone, if you have an Erickson phone. You know, I was, I was probably the best Snake player in the world because I played Snake every day. But we couldn't say too much. You know, you, you play the game in the right way is what it's called back then, play the game the right way. But as an ev- life evolves, you know, we evolved in life. And, and the evolution of the game, it was bound to change. You know, these, these kids, they, I mean, every sport celebrate except baseball. Basketball, they got the three-pointers. They hit the head with the horns. Football, they do the dance. They're doing gritties in the, in the end zone. And baseball, you hit a home run. You got to just drop the your head and run. Yeah. So they add a life to the game right now, which I don't mind it because I was looking at If somebody hit a home run off me, I'm looking in the stands. As long as you were running, by the time I look back, I, don't, I didn't see a pimp job. I don't care about it. If you hit my 500 feet, you should look at it. Because I'm looking with to watch. <laughs> but but they, you have to make the game fun. And these youngsters coming up, they're making the game fun. So... So it's, it's inevitable. I, I can tell you now, y'all would have loved playing in the Negro League because okay. you would have you had some fun. Yeah, you would have had fun because they didn't have those unwritten rules in the Negro Leagues. No, man, it was going to be a show. And, and they knew that baseball was entertainment. Right. And so when you went to those games, you're going to be thoroughly entertained. Now, that didn't mean you weren't going to see great fundamentally sound baseball but you were going to see it played with a level of athleticism that made people stand up and pay attention. And, and, and that was the thing. You know, here's Satchel facing Josh Gibson in an epic matchup, and he's talking to him, CeCe. Yeah. Yeah, he's coming to the plate, and Satchel's talking to him. You know, you can't really do that. Now, maybe the catcher might say something to you when you come up to the mound, but can you imagine oh, that when, you know, here comes Curtis to the plate, and you say, hey, you know what I'm about to do to you, don't you? That's how, that's how me and D. Gordon was. Because yeah. D. come up and talk, and Adam Jones is going to talk, too. Adam's Adam going to talk. Adam's going to talk. That's Adam's going to talk. And Prince. Prince will talk. Prince talk too. I so will talk to talk. Prince on the mound. We talking. Hey, yeah. don't hang that slider. Don't worry. I'm going to throw the good one. You know, hey, hey, we, we talk. It was one night, me and Prince, we were in New York, and he was with Detroit. We were supposed to go to dinner. We go to dinner after every game. Every night, every game, our family's going to dinner. He took me deep that night. I left <laughs> I, I, I bounced. I was like, bro, I can't go to dinner. That's a night. Tomorrow, I'll see you tomorrow, dog. <laughs> he was standing in the players' parking lot like, where you at? I'm home, bro. I ain't even taking you Don't home. Don't call me tonight. I'll talk to you tomorrow, dog. <laughs> Man, but that's the luxury as a black pitcher. We face all of our boys. Yeah. It's like high school, though. You face all your boys because everybody always like, man, how you? how is it facing your partners? I said, we laugh, but at the end of the day, he know I'm coming at him. I'm and, I, and I might back him up on purpose because yeah. if I back my friend up, everybody else is going to like, man, that's his partner. He, he throwing <laughs> in, in on his yeah, partner. No, he really no, going to throw no. in on his Everybody else know. I was here with Fergie. He with Fergie earlier today. And, and I told him that when I had Dusty Baker on the podcast, he told me about a pitch that Satchel threw, guys. Curtis, you're not going to like this as a hitter. 
he threw a pitch that he called the throat cutter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Satchel described the throat cutter in this way. He said, number one, you only throw the throat cutter when the count is one and two. Don't want to throw it two and two because you don't want to run the risk of, of running it three and two. Obviously, don't want to throw it three and two because you don't want to walk it. The throat cutter, CC Satchel said he would put it right here, <laughs> right up underneath their chin. And then they would swing like this. And when they did that, they cut their throat. <laughs> and then when they looked back at the umpire to see if they actually would call strike, the head would fall off. <laughs> but, you know, Satchel, Buck O'Neill always said, though, that Satchel never felt like he had to knock you down. Satchel felt like he could get you out with his stuff. And, and more times than not, he could. How important is the legacy of, of the Negro Leagues to you guys? I think it's, it's, it's super important. I, but I think for me, it's Buck O'Neill's legacy is important to me because, you know, the story about, you know, him coming up to me my very first day in Kansas City, introducing himself, and then that's how we met. And that's how my love for the Negro Leagues. Obviously, I knew Jackie's story. Um, being in Cleveland, I knew Larry Doby's story. Um, but I didn't know the extent of the Negro Leagues. I didn't know how great the players were. I didn't know that these were actually the best players in the world at the time. Um, you know, so I think for me, having a chance to see Buck go in next weekend, like it's going to be emotional for me. I know it's going to be emotional for you, but it's, it's just awesome that he was that way, that he cared about the Negro Leagues that much or just cared about us yeah. and the legacy that we kept it going, you know, and, and Mudcat, you know, all these different people that – you know, I've impacted my life. I just feel lucky to, to, to come across, you know, you and, and Buck and all the Sam, Sam Allen, all these different people that I got a chance to, to meet, um, I think is what's shaping, you know, my adult life. And it's, it's just great. It's just awesome to be a part of it. Um, for me, it's the foundation because that's where it started. You know, um, we're only as strong as the foundation and the foundation was strong as we can see. We look around this room and there's so many names that I don't know. I'm like, man, I want to leave here and go walk around. But this is where we come from. This is an impression of us. You know, we look around this room, there are pieces of us in all of these players that we carry today. And so to be able to do that, um, when we take the field, it's like a part of us taking the field as the Negro Leagues, you know. Um, myself, I, I want to take my kid, like our kids look at us and, and everything we do is their foundation. So when we look around this room, I'm honored to be able to look, hear these stories and be blessed to hear these stories, some of the stories that I never knew about. And it's my career, and I owe everything that I, I've done in my career to all these names around the room because I feel like a piece of me is in a lot of these different players. And for me, if you ever look up a picture of me wearing my uniform, I wore my pants up high because of all these Negro League greats. That's the reason why I did it. I saw uniforms and I said, that's the coolest thing. Whenever I get a chance to get pants that won't fall down, I am bringing them up. And ever since that day, I've always had them up just to be like them. And there's just things I enjoyed and watched from them. And I got a chance to meet Buck O'Neill as well. The first time I made the major leagues in Kansas City, he came out clean, suit, Suited. dressed up, ready to roll, and just left an impression on me. And it's always been that way. Every time we take the field, I feel like we're playing for them and we're trying to leave that legacy out there. Whenever you saw the three of us out there, like when the game was over, we were exhausted because we were putting everything out there just like all of them did. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it is beautiful. And that's the thing that I talk about is the fact that you guys understand your place in this game. And, and that is really important. And this next generation of young African-American, and I hope the Hispanic ball players as well, 
understand their place in this game that all roads led to the Negro Leagues. I had Pedro Sierra, a Cuban player, who played in the Negro Leagues up here on stage with Mr. Allen earlier. And he talked about the great pride that he had playing in the Negro Leagues and being called the N-word when he didn't even know what it was until he got to this country and they started to explain. And he said he would cuss them out in, in, in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, understanding that this game, the roots begin in the Negro Leagues. For any black and brown player that plays this game, it all starts right here. And I don't think we would understand our place, though, if it wasn't for Buck. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would understand my place in the game or you, you know what I'm saying? If we didn't get a chance to meet yeah. Buck and have and had the interactions that we have with you exactly. and come to Kansas City and come to the museum. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, like you taking all the players every time you go in, me trying to take rookies every time. Like, mm -hmm. we wouldn't understand our place in this game if it wasn't for Buck. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it all falls back to him. I mean, it's the Negro Leagues, but for but us, for, for us, it's him. Yeah, no, and it's the same thing for me. I mean, it, that, that is what ignited the flame for me is meeting Buck O'Neill. And, and at that time, guys, walking into a little one room office just about as big as this stage and I knocked on the door I said I'm looking for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the late Don Motley was the executive director at that time he says son you're standing in it you know and but as I tell people little did I know that I had literally just walked into what would become my passion yeah this was a passion project I was a baseball fan who knew very little about the history of this game because you cannot talk about the history of this game nor the history of this country without including the Negro Leagues. And man, I was just blown away by it. And now I wanted to learn as much as I could and I didn't want to keep it to myself. You know, and it has given me the opportunity to meet tremendous young people like yourselves who have now embraced this history, the heritage of this game, and now you're carrying it forward. You're paying it forward now to a new generation as I see this young this young handsome man here, a future ball player. Uh, you know, I want to see a Kansas City Royal uniform, but that's all right. That's, he said, oh no, it's LA all the way. LA all the way. I think about this also too for the history side of it, Bob. I'm not sure if everybody here knows, but are you planning to watch the All-Star game on Tuesday night? Notice how I said Tuesday night. Bob, please tell these individuals who played the first night game. The Negro Leagues. Right. Yeah, 1930. 1930, J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Monarchs, literally mortgaged everything he had to pioneer night baseball. Portable, generated light towers. So not only could they play a night game in Kansas City, they could load them up and play a night game virtually Everywhere. anywhere. Now the history book says that first game took place in 1935 in Cincinnati. Cincinnati Reds versus the Philadelphia Phillies. As I oftentimes share with our visitors, the history book is wrong. No, it was 1930, and it featured. Now, see that Kansas City Monarch jersey back there in the back? It featured our great Kansas City Monarchs. And, but not only did night baseball start in the Negro Leagues, shin guards and the batting helmet, these innovations also came out of the Negro Leagues. And it's so important to have a place where you can learn this stuff because, as my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. Uh -huh. And so we got a place there in Kansas City where you can learn. You can get an idea. And it's so beautiful to see so many different people from all races coming into that museum, Curtis, as you all three know. You know, because you've brought people of different races into that museum. 
and everybody walks away, I think, appreciating this sport even more, you know, than probably they did when they walked in. You have to. You have to. Yeah. This is the foundation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's a newfound respect because a lot of people don't know these stories that you tell. Half of the stories I'm listening to, I'm like, man. (laughs) So I'm in class right now with some of the stories. And I've done a game for 17 seasons, you know. So imagine somebody that's just learning the game of baseball and they starting from the foundation. You learning from the roots. You have to be amazed. Well, you know, even as I sit here and I look at this wall that's facing us, and there's the name Martin DeHigo. Martin DeHigo, folks, hail from Cuba. And Martin DeHigo holds the distinction of being the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different oh. countries' Ooh. baseball halls of fame. <laughs> and when he's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. Wow. And, and as a pitcher, you guys will appreciate this. In the Mexican League, DeHigo goes 19-2 and two with a ridiculous 0.90 ERA. <laughs> Oh, but it gets better. The sucker hits 387 <laughs> that same season and won the batting title. So we talk about Otani. That's <laughs> Otani right there. <laughs> that was Otani. Yeah. And, and, and the beautiful thing about the excitement around Shohei, I'm glad you mentioned that, is that it has now given me an opportunity to talk about the great two-way stars of the Negro League. Yeah. You know, like you mentioned, as being a great athlete, you all could hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when Both you of them would hit home runs. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You, 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 you can hit. Yeah, you can hit and then you get to the big leagues and they don't let you hit anymore. <laughs> you know? And, and so, but all the guys in the Negro Leagues could hit the pitchers because, as you could well imagine, they didn't have the roster sizes that we see with Major League Baseball. They didn't have a 25-man roster. So you're not going to have a four or five-man dedicated pitching rotation. So they had to have versatility. So they had great athletes. You know, Martin DeHigo was a great, he played all nine positions. He played all nine. And, and they say his arm rival Roberto Clemente's in the outfield. You know, and as, again, Monty Irvin would describe him as a beautiful ball player. Six feet four, six five, just majestic, you know, strong, could really play. And then you got a guy like Hilton Smith, that's what also, I knew he was going to bring up Yeah, him. the great Hilton Smith, <laughs> whom Buck O'Neill says the greatest curveball he ever saw. And, and so he had CC that big 12 to 6 breaker, and then he could drop down about three quarters and throw what he called a tight curveball. You guys today would probably call it a slider. Yeah, you call it a slider. Yeah. All with pinpoint control, but when he wasn't playing, when he wasn't pitching, he played the outfield and had a lifetime batting average over 300. <laughs> you know, or Bullet Joe Rogan, who was 5'7", and pitched with a no-wind-up delivery. How does that work? Yet his nickname <laughs> was Bullet. <laughs> 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 who, when he wasn't pitching, he hit cleanup and five, played seven? the outfield. At 5'7". Yeah. Hit cleanup and played the outfield for the Monarch. Let me tell you, you don't just hit cleanup for the Monarch because they always had great starts. And Bullet Rogan might have been the, 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 the Negro League's first great two-way star. Yeah, he stole, he led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases when he was 38 years wow. old, man. I mean, that's the kind of athlete, and that's why I'm so glad that you guys are surrounded and you took time to come into this exhibition. And as I look at that far wall and I see a picture of my childhood idol, the legendary Henry Aaron. That's who I wanted to be when I was growing up as a kid in Georgia, Henry Aaron. Everybody, any day on the playground, I wanted to be Henry Aaron 
And then I get to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and had no idea that he had played in the Negro League. Right. You know, so now it's like, how in the world did I not know this? Yeah, and, and, and so he oftentimes talked about playing for the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952. He's a skinny, cross-handed hitting infielder. So he's a right-hand hitter hitting with his left hand on top. That's unorthodox. The fears that you break your wrist hitting in that manner, Henry is knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When he gets to the clowns, they put the right hand on top, and the rest, as they say, was history. But he's 18 years old at that time. And when he, what he told me, he says, I didn't know if I was leaving home to go with, play with kids my own age or grown men. As you all know, he was playing with grown men. Yeah. But you know what? The beautiful thing about those young guys who played in the Negro Leagues after Jackie breaks the color barrier, that older Negro League player nurtured them. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about, you know, as young black players came into the league, what did you do? Yep. You took them to dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, you took them to dinner, probably in some cases you bought them a suit. Yep. You know, you did those things. There was this level of nurturing that went along with this. And that's that inherent responsibility that I think we felt, particularly for those players from the Negro Leagues, they were doing the exact same thing that you talked about you and Prince doing, CeCe. After the game, they were going, because they had very few places, number one, that they could go. So they were making sure that there was a safe place for these players to come out after those games in a place where they didn't have to feel so tremendously isolated. And I go back to the conversation that you and I had talking about when you played in Milwaukee for the first time with a really group of black players yeah. and how special that felt. Please relate that back to the to the audience. Yeah, playing in Milwaukee that first year when I got, well, that first year, that year I got traded over there, um, you know, I was nervous. I had only played in the Indians organization. I had been there for 10 years. I got drafted when I was 17. I cried like a baby that night. Like, I didn't know, you know, anything else but, but being in Cleveland. So I fly to, to Milwaukee and I get in the clubhouse and Prince is there, is Billy Hall, Mike Cameron's the vet. Um, Bray Durham is there, and it's like I'm home. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this is like this is like I'm like I'm like 15 again, playing back home with all my boys. So everybody talks about that being the best stretch of my career, but I was the most comfortable. Like I had the most fun in those two months in the 19 years I played um, because I was I was just comfortable with who I was who in the clubhouse every single day. You know what I mean? And it was just. It was one of those things where I didn't want the season to end. So I was pitching on three days rest trying to get into the World Series so I could just extend having, you know, hanging out with my boy. I'm ready. I'm ready. I ain't ready to go home yet. <laughs> and, and I know we're running out of time, but I want to kind of get your first All-Star game, what you remember about your first All-Star game, each of you, before we have, to close, we have to close it out here. So EJ and I was at the first All-Star game together. We were with the Tigers together, had a similar situation that CeCe had. I mean, there might have been six or seven brothers on that team. And then we both make the All-Star team in St. Louis, get a chance to go out there. And one of the biggest moments for me out that game was President Barack Obama came through the clubhouse, shook everybody's hand, came up to me and goes, you're from Chicago, right? I was like, oh. <laughs> So that was my biggest takeaway from that, from that game. I think for me, um, just having some brothers with me. Um, how I had Curtis. Um, I know we had a, we had a uh, picture with maybe Adam and uh, Carl Crawford. So just having some of my boys there with me to be able to experience that moment, it made me feel more comfortable. And uh, I had actually got a chance to meet Obama 
pre-presidential, and then I got a chance to meet him when he was actually the president. So I was like, dang, I get to meet, I get to meet him twice. You know, <laughs> I'm living. I get, I get to meet him pre and then as the actual president. But just being able to share, share that experience with some of my boys, um, that was a dope experience because there's, there's not a lot of us in the game right now. And back then it was more, but just to have some guys with you that you you know and you can relate to and you can go out and have fun with, that was that was everything. Yeah, CC. My, my first All-Star game was 2003 um, in Chicago, and I just remember being nervous, man. I was 23 years old. Like, I went in there and didn't say a word. <laughs> like, I, I didn't talk to anybody. The only person that talked to me was uh, uh, Dimitri Young. Uh, <laughs> he looked to me under his wing. I followed him everywhere. <laughs> but I tell you, I'm talking about even when he went to go hit, I was like, I'm going to go walk behind the cage. <laughs> so I just remember being intimidated, man. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was an intimidating feeling walking into the All Star game for the first time. But you know, it was a blessing. So uh, yeah, it was cool. 2003 was my first one. Yeah, now guys, we are enjoying a conversation with three former All Star baseball players. But more importantly, they are All Star human beings. Please give it up for my friends CC Sabathia, Edwin Jackson, Curtis Granderson. I'm Bob Kendrick. You've been enjoying live versions of Black Diamonds, our official podcast of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Please download and subscribe at SXM app or anywhere that you get your podcast. And, and this is what I'm excited about, guys. I have my own curated playlist on Pandora. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 please. Please check out. It, it is music inspired by the Negro Leagues, curated by yours truly. It is an eclectic list ranging from hip hop to jazz. Okay. Yeah, so be sure to check that out as well. Guys, thank you all so much for being here, being a part of Black Diamonds. I want to thank my Sirius XM family for this tremendous platform that they've given the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Please make sure you subscribe to Black Diamonds. Give us that five-star rating so we can continue to tell these stories about the history of the Negro Leagues. Enjoy the rest of All-Star festivities, and we'll see you down the road. All right. This summer, help continue the legacy of Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill by visiting thanksamillionbuck.com. With one million donations of just a single buck or more, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum can move closer to completion of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were born in 1920. We'll teach not only the stories of Negro Leagues baseball, but also math and science through the lens of baseball history. Log on to thanksamillionbuck.com and donate today. Every buck counts. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. 
Special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.